Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Not grieving the Holy Spirit. It's what it really means to be in relationship with Jesus. So and then in Proverbs 22, I'm just picking up some verses here. Uh, it says in verse 28, in Proverbs 22, verse 28, it says, Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Well, that's got a lot of wisdom in it for all young people today. It's got a lot of wisdom in it for our nation. It's got a lot of wisdom on a lot of different levels. But looking at revival, you know, have we moved the ancient boundaries? Well, where can we find those ancient boundaries? Well, I think a simple place to start is the book of Acts. Do we see our church within the boundaries that the church is in in the book of Acts? Are we walking in that kind of revival? Are we hungry for that kind of move of the Holy Spirit and that kind of solid Bible teaching and true and right doctrine? And we find this in the book of Acts, and we see that it was a struggle. We see that it wasn't easy, but we see that they never compromised on the call that God had on their lives. They continued to push forward to fulfill the Great Commission and to establish the church that Jesus said, I will build and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there are boundaries for revival, and they're in the Word of God. And it says, don't move those boundaries. You know, that's kind of a phrase that's used a lot in, in America these days. They're moving the goalposts, right? I mean, we've heard that a lot over the past few years with COVID. They kept saying, they're moving the goalposts, you know. Well, the Bible says, don't move the goalposts. That's cheating. And you're, you're, what, you may make the goal, you know, you may get the touchdown, but the touchdown wasn't really a touchdown. And when they come back and, and the judge really comes to check it, he's going to say, yeah, but that field was only 99 yards long. That doesn't count as a touchdown or something like that. You can't move God's boundaries. You'll still be judged by the same boundaries. He doesn't change. And so it says, uh, do not move the ancient boundary, which your fathers have set. You know, moving ancient boundaries is the same as, as uh, stealing somebody else's property. Do, do you know that? I mean, that's what it's really talking about in the Hebrew culture. You, you can't move your boundaries beyond the boundary that the Lord gave you. Use the talent God's given you. Get, use the property he's given you. Verse 29 says, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And again, applying this to revival, there's a skill in the work of, of bearing the burden of revival and of shepherding that revival, of wanting to see the move of God. It will not happen just because we want it to happen, I guess is what I'm saying. A lot of people want something to happen, but they're not skilled in their work. And if you want to be skilled in your work, everybody knows what you have to do. You have to study to show yourself approved unto God. You have to gain experience. You have to try things sometimes. And maybe you're going to mess up. But when you mess up, you're going to learn from that failure. We sang about Peter walking on the water. I mean, we didn't use the name Peter, but we talked about walking on water. So, I mean, how, how did that go for Peter? Was that a big success? It was a complete failure for him. He sunk and he would have drowned if he had not grabbed a hold of the hand of Jesus. But you know, Peter's zeal for the things of God, you know, that's the story of Peter's life that God chose to share with us. It's a constant uh, trying to do something and failing and messing up all the way to the point that he denies Jesus three times and he uses some pretty bad cuss words when he does it. That's really what the scripture shows us. You know, he, he utterly rejects Jesus in front of people. He's a complete failure. How could this guy ever be an apostle? But the one thing the Bible always shows us about Peter is that he never gives up. He doesn't quit. He's a person who wants to learn to be skilled in following Jesus. And we finally see him. He loves Jesus so much. He so wants to be with Jesus. The kind of last story when Jesus uh, says, you know, tell, tell, ask him if, he, if, if, if you love me and feed my sheep and that. You know, when Je he's denied Jesus three times and, and Peter uh, is reaffirmed by Jesus three times also. And, and Jesus affirms him in the call that's on his life. And it's not until the Holy Spirit comes, until revival comes in Acts chapter 2, that we really see the Peter that Peter can be. 
Because we can't be the Peter that God wants us to be without the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not enough to just take a theological position and say, well, I'm saved, I prayed, I got baptized, I did these things, so the Holy Spirit is in my life. Okay, well, I'm not going to theologically argue with anybody. I'm not going to say you're not born again. I'm not going to say that the Holy Spirit doesn't live on the inside of you, but is he actively moving in your life today? Is he actively moving in our families today? Am I giving him, and I'm preaching myself first here, am I giving him the freedom to, to do what he wants to do in my life, or am I trying to control him? You know, so Peter, in that story, that kind of last story in the Gospels, uh, if you remember, they're out fishing on the boat, and Jesus is on the shore, and he's frying fish for them. He's cooking breakfast, and and they're looking, and they don't know who that is on the shore. He calls out to them, tells them, put your net on the other side. Same thing. I mean, you'd think they'd clue in right away. That's Jesus, because a miraculous catch happens. The same thing happens again. But they don't immediately clue into that. And John whispers to Peter, that's, that's Jesus. And you know what? You remember what Peter does. He strips off all of his clothes, you know, down to his undies. He strips off everything that could prevent him from getting to Jesus. He dives overboard and he swims to Jesus because he wants to get to where Jesus is. He doesn't walk on the water the second time. He, but he gets there. I don't think it really matters if we walk on the water or we swim through the water or we just stay in the boat and listen to Jesus. The important thing is that we get there. We get to what God wants for us in, in, in our lives. And we don't allow anything to stop us from that. In Proverbs 22, verse 3, skipping back over to there, it says, The prudent sees the evil and he hides himself, but the naive go on and they are punished for it. And then in verse 13, it says, The sluggard says there is a lion outside, I will be killed in the streets. So they kind of seem like contradictory verses because verse 3 tells us to hide ourselves from evil. But verse 13 tells us that we're lazy if we're too afraid to get out of our house and go out on the streets because there's a lion there. I remember one early morning, I can't remember how many months ago this was, but I either got a phone call or a text from Terry Merritt, and it, it said there's a, a mountain lion walking down the streets of uh, Yarrington today. <laughs> and I don't know if any of you saw, I never saw the thing. Okay, but it, supposedly it was walking right here by the church. And I was just getting ready to come to work, so I... First thing I did, I went and got a shotgun, took it with me just in case. I mean, if a lion's going to pounce on me, I want to be ready. And, and I had a little bit of trepidation. There's a lion in the streets. You know, I've never, I haven't, I've lived here for over six years. I haven't seen a mountain lion yet. See tracks, you know, you hear about them. I don't see, I haven't even seen a rattlesnake yet. I saw them all the time in Oklahoma growing up. I haven't seen one single rattlesnake. Don't want to see one, I'm fine. Seen enough black widow spiders, I don't want them either. You know, but, but I want to be prepared for whatever might, you know, happen in life, right? And so the sluggard, he says, there's a lion in the street, so I'm just going to hide away in my house. I'm going to hide away in my own mind. I'll hide away in my own world. Well, there is a lion in the streets today. And we cannot hide away in our own selves because it's going to get us anyway. We have to hide. Yes, we have to hide from the evil that's coming. But we're the only one place we can hide. We can only hide in Jesus. We can only hide in the Holy Spirit. There's no other shelter that could ever protect us from the evil that's coming. And we need to hide ourselves away in Jesus. So go with me over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I believe that when we hide ourselves away in Jesus, it'll look a whole lot like Philippians chapter 4, where we rejoice in the Lord, where uh, we don't worry about things. But through prayer and supplication, we make our requests known unto God. And when we are hidden in Jesus and we have made and are making our requests, how many of you are making your requests known unto God? Or you just complain about them? I mean, how often, I mean, we have all these old songs, you know, uh, just give it to the Lord in prayer and all these things. But we, we literally go for months complaining and worrying about something before we actually realize, hey, maybe we should just pray about this. Maybe we should just trust God. We're not making our requests known unto God. We're not pouring our hearts out before Him. What it is we want from Him. What, what kind of revival we want to have. How we want to have the move of the Holy Spirit 
in, in our lives. And because we're not abiding in prayer and making our requests known unto God, then we don't get the rest of the verse that says, In the peace of God that passes all understanding, it will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we're hidden away in Jesus, you'll know that you're hiding in Jesus because you'll have peace. Not the kind of peace that everybody has, but the kind that's crazy peace. Insane, not normal peace. But it passes all understanding. It will keep your heart and your mind. That means there's a reason to lose your peace, right? Or it wouldn't have to pass your understanding. But if we're hiding away in our own understanding, maybe... Maybe there's an element and something the Lord's challenging me about. An element where I'm talking about danger, but maybe I'm just a sluggard. Maybe I'm just too lazy when it really comes. I mean, I love how God just, you know, calls it black and white, just boils it all down and says, you're just a sluggard. Get up and get out and do what I've called you to do. Face the lion and hide away in me. Hide away in my armor. Remember David, when he was going out to meet Goliath, Saul wanted to cover him with the armor, let's say, of the flesh. Okay? And he said, this doesn't fit me. This isn't my size, and I don't know how to use it. I've never used it before. So I'm not going out with that armor. I'm going out in the armor of the Lord. I'm not going out with a sword. I'm going out with a slingshot. Because that's what I am skilled in. That's what the talent God's given me. That's the gift he's given me. And my armor is the Lord. And God, of course, gives him, gives us the victory in that. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, talking about hiding away in the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says in verse 13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? We talked about Peter. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a little focus on this word zealous. Okay, we'll talk to, look at it again in the next verses we look at it. But Peter was zealous for what is good. Being zealous for what is good means you really want that. Okay? It doesn't mean that, that you've got it already. In fact, probably you don't have to be zealous for something that you've already got. It means you want more of God. You want more of Him in your life. It means we're singing a song uh, the last worship song before, uh, and I know that this is here in this atmosphere today because I could hear how people clapped and the joy they had in that. But the last song before the offering song, and then we go to the offering song, and it's like the song that just lifts you up into the presence of God. You're just singing to the Lord. And it, it, it's like before you're singing and they're good songs. No, they're all good songs. I'm not saying that, but there's this progression and, and you're wanting more, and you're hoping for more, and suddenly that more comes, and you're so happy to experience the presence of God in your life. You're zealous for what is, is good, this zeal. You know, this zeal was in Jesus, and it was uh, manifested uh, when he cleansed the temple, which was quite a violent thing to do. But the disciples, they couldn't understand why he was doing what he was doing. It kind of scared them, to be honest, because they knew they were going to get in a lot of trouble for that, and they did. But it says that later they remembered this scripture, that the zeal for the house of God has consumed me. It's a fire that consumes on the inside. So uh, Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, we might say their scoffing. And do not be troubled, but sanctify, listen to this, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Very simply, what it means to sanctify something is set it apart as holy. Make it special. You know, a lot of us have things, everyone in here probably has something in your house that has what we call sentimental value, right? Nobody else would care about that when you have a yard sale because you're moving or you have a estate sale because you died. Nobody's going to give more than a few pennies for that thing. It's not real gold or it's not really worth that, but it's something you sanctified to yourself because it has a sentimental value. It really means something to you. Well, when we're talking about Jesus Christ, we're talking about the real gold. We're talking about the real thing. 
But as valuable as Jesus is, most people have not sanctified Him as the Lord in their heart. They have not put that on on the inside of them that nothing means more to me than Jesus Christ and He as the Lord of my heart. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. There's a lot here, but I'll just keep reading. Yet with gentleness and reverence. And, and keep a good conscience. You know, we have a good conscience when we obey God. <laughs> That's just the bottom line of it. We have a good conscience when we do what God's telling us to do. When we think like God thinks, when we act like God acts, and when we speak what God speaks. Having a good conscience doesn't mean that you're perfect in everything. It means you're obedient. You're obedient. We have a good conscience. The conscience is clean. And everybody loves a good conscience. It's just something that is incomparable to other, other feelings. So have a, keep a good conscience. Work on this. Have a good conscience so that in, that in the thing in which you are slandered or scoffed at, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. One of the reasons I'm talking about this is if we want revival and we're going to see revival, then we, we need to be prepared to suffer. Because revival does not come without suffering. Revival does not come without being reviled, without being scoffed at. Revival never makes anybody popular. When the Holy Spirit's moving in your life, you're not going to be like everybody else in the world. So you're not going to fit in. But isn't that what God's called the church to be? To be this chosen out vessel that's sanctified to himself, that's different from the, from the world. Um, so it says, uh, for verse 17, uh, for it is better, listen to this, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So one point I want to make to you, there's a purpose in suffering. And very often in our suffering, God has actually purposed that. It's his will. And we can blame the devil, and the devil's always messed up in something somewhere doing something. That's true. You know, we see him in the book of Job, you know, and all these sufferings. But bottom line is, Job suffered, uh, you know, you can get into a theological argument about it, but God allowed it, okay? And Peter says, if it's the will of God for you to suffer, if it's the will of God for you to bear this burden of this revival, for you to take this upon yourself, for you to suffer for doing those things which are right and not for doing those things which are wrong, then we should see God's purpose in that. For, and then the example is Jesus. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. He didn't deserve that, but he did that for us so that he might, listen to this word, bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So I want to take just a minute and talk about this word bring, okay? You see there it says so that he might bring us to God. We would not have been brought to God if Jesus was not willing to suffer. We will not see Yarrington brought to God through Jesus Christ if we're not willing to suffer. I'm not saying that if we'll go out and purposely suffer, that means there's going to be revival. That's just stupid to invite persecution on yourself for no reason. I am saying that if we're seeking after the Lord with all our hearts, then we will suffer. We will go through tribulations. We will go through trials. But there is a purpose in that. And, you know, I don't want to expound on, on suffering here, what, what that, you know, because it's going to look different ways for different people in different times. But you, you know what it means to suffer, to have to put up with something. Really, the English word suffer going way back has to do with being patient with stuff. You know, remember in the King James Bible, Jesus says, suffer the little children to come unto me. Most people remember that little King James phrase because it doesn't make sense today anymore. But what, it, what he's saying is have patience with these little children and, and bear the burden of their crying and acting silly and doing nonsense and let them come to me. Get these little children to me. Get these people to me. So when we open the door and we allow the presence of God to come in to the church, then that alone produces suffering in our lives. And then on top of that, you have persecution, you have scoffers, you have these things. But in the suffering, there is a purpose. And the purpose is to bring us, to bring people to God. So I'm not going to take the time to do it because it'd be a long teaching. But the, the word bring here is not the normal word for bring. Okay, And it has a really important 
kind of underlying meaning to it. And it comes out in several verses in the Old Testament, and it comes out especially in three other verses in the, Old Te- in the New Testament. And I'm not going to open them, but I'm just going to say them out. If you're writing notes, you can write them down, look them up yourself. But in Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 1 and following, it's called the introduction to God's grace. This same idea of being brought to God. It's an introduction to God's grace. In the New American Standard, it says that. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 13 and reading on through 18, it's called access to the Father. So Peter is saying that by his suffering, Jesus introduced us to the grace of God. By his suffering, Jesus gave us access to the Father God. And then in chapter 3, verse 8 of Ephesians, and following through verse 13, it's called that we have boldness and confident access. We have boldness and confident access to come before God. The word boldness means literally in the Greek, freedom of speech. We can make our requests known to God. We can speak freely in His presence. And not because we deserve that position, but because Jesus Christ suffered for us. And he paid the price so that we could come into the presence of God. That's really important. And within this Greek word that's, that I'm trying to point out here, uh, there's this understanding. It has a real technical meaning. And, and, and it has to do with an ambassador being brought into the presence of a king. Or, you know, a, a, a commoner being brought into the presence of the king to speak. And the king actually will listen to him and receive what he has to say. Not because the commoner walked up and knocked on the door. Not because the ambassador demanded a meeting with the president of the United States there or whatever country you're looking at or whatever king, right? That's not how ambassadors get an audience. They are introduced. They are brought in. It's by the will of the king. And anybody that just goes up and knocks on the door is going to get arrested. Right? <laughs> you don't just go up and knock on the door and say, hey, I'm going to talk to the king today. You'll just get arrested for that. Esther said, I can't just walk into the presence of the king, Mordecai. Remember she said that? She said, because if I just walk into his presence and he doesn't stretch out his scepter, and by the way, he never stretches out his scepter, and by the way, he just got rid of Vashti, his wife. He's not really a pleasant feller. And you want me to walk into his presence? If I just walk into his presence, I'm going to get killed, right? And then at the end of the story, she says, okay, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do the will of God anyway. Well, this, how much more? God. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For our God is a consuming fire. So we have been given access. Is that not revival? We've been given an introduction into the presence of God. What are we doing with it? Are we hiding ourselves away in that place where we have boldness, where we have confident access, where we have an introduction to God's grace? Um, Many of you were in this church way before I moved here, and uh, you remember Edna Chisholm, who I always call Grandma Chisholm. And, uh, you know, Dave, Tom's mom. And uh, when we were first moving here, I don't know why she said some little phrases to us that this kind of stuck I guess she used to have a lot of little phrases or something, I don't know, but this kind of stuck in, in my mind. And, and one of the things she said is, make sure you just have fun. And it always sticks in my mind, am I having fun? You know, because I understood what she meant, spiritually, not, you know, just go ride a roller coaster or something. But, you know, enjoy what God's doing. And some, sometimes I think, I'm not really enjoying this. That means I'm doing something wrong. You know, I'm not hiding away in the presence of God because it's a place of rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How can Paul say that when he's sitting in prison, when he writes those words? Because he's hidden away in, in God. And another thing she said uh, was, and this kind of, I've heard this from other places, but I remember her saying it, make sure you go where you're celebrated, not where you're tolerated. I mean, we're, we're spending like 99% of our lives in the courts of people that just tolerate us. When we have a king who celebrates us, he wants us to be in his presence. He wants us to hide away in him. Go with me over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and I want to read, uh, begin with verse 19. 
Philippians 2.19. So listen to what Paul's writing here. Philippians 2.19, because it's, it's shocking. Listen to what he says. But I hope in the Lord Jesus, this is just when he's dealing with these you know, little moments where he's uh, telling them what to do. Sometimes he says, don't forget to bring my coat. You know, make sure you get those scrolls for me. Uh, those kind of everyday things. And he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. So they didn't have internet back then. So if he really wanted to know what was going on there, he had to send a person there and then hear back from him. By the way, even with internet, if you really want to know what's going on with the person, you need to meet with them and look them face to face. So he says, I, I hope I can send Timothy to you soon. Listen to verse 20. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who, would, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. The word seek is the same word as zealous that we already read. It means to be jealous for something, to be zealous for something. They are zealous about their own interests. They are not zealous about the interests of Christ Jesus, about the things that belong to Christ Jesus. But you know of his, Timothy's, proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving with his father, or serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So it's really quite an amazing thing to think now, after all these years of ministry, and Paul is in prison. Now, this, this doesn't mean there's no other Christians out there that really care about Jesus. But he's saying, in my ministry team, and that's a pretty wide group of people, and the ones that are with me, you know, I'm not saying that he's talking bad about Titus or something. We don't know where all these people were at that exact moment. But the people that I have around me, there's only one person I can send to you. There's a lot of people. But there's only one person that is qualified to come to visit you, just to visit you. And the reason why is because everybody else is concerned with their own personal interests and not the interests of Christ Jesus. And I cannot allow myself to send somebody who doesn't meet up to the high qualifications of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul could have lowered his standards, and I'm sure he would have had a lot bigger ministry team, right? He could have lowered his standards and he would have had a lot more popular ministry and a lot more views on YouTube and likes on Facebook. But he's not going to lower his standards because they're not his standards, they're the standards of Jesus. And he says that the person who's really qualified for revival and ready for revival, the only one I have is Timothy. And I, I'd come myself, but I can't get out of jail. I'm sitting here in jail, uh, but when I do get out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come see you. You know, but I can send Timothy to you. So he says that, that and listen to this, that he's of a kindred spirit of me. The, the, the Greek here brings out this, it's really a good translation, kindred spirit. I know it sounds like Anne of Green Gables, but it is a really good translation. And uh, to be a, a kindred spirit, it, because the, the, the idea is that the same fire that burns in me burns on the inside of him. He, he, he loves the things I love. We're completely different. You know, he thinks in different ways. He does things in different ways. He's not, he's not the same person I am, and I'm not the same person he is. But the fire that's on the inside of us, this is the same. And he cares about the things that Jesus cares about. Well, what does Jesus care about? Well, he says here, he's the only one who genuinely will care for your welfare because Jesus really cares about the church. Do you know, Jesus really loves the church. And so he's going to, if he, he cares about the church with the love of Jesus Christ. He cares about the revival. He cares about what God wants. He's not sitting in the seat of the scoffer, and he's not just caring for his own things. So Matthew uh, chapter 16, let me just read that real quick, even though everybody knows it, but let's read it. Matthew chapter 16, I say these aren't the standards of Paul. They're the standards of Jesus. Je Paul's just standing in the place of Jesus when he says this. In Matthew chapter 16, and they're not standards that apply to apostles and missionaries and great pastors. They're just Jesus' real-life Christian standards, what it means to follow Jesus. 
He says, it, it's the standard of a disciple. In Matthew 16, 24, they're not standards that apply to old people only or young people only. This is what it means to be a disciple. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, it says that Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, so do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want revival? Do you want the move of the Holy Spirit in your life, in your home, in your family? I'm asking myself this question. Hey, Pastor Kevin, do you want to follow Jesus? Do you wish to come after Jesus? Then he must deny himself. Wow. I, I, th I thought I was supposed to work on myself and make myself a better person. Wow, I, I thought I was a, you know, supposed to do something. No, you just need to deny yourself. Deny yourself. Deny the things that you desire. Deny the things that are your personal interests. Take up his cross and follow me. Well, cross, doesn't that mean suffering? To suffer together with Christ Jesus. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's one of the most enigmatic statements in the New Testament because it just completely goes against everything that we think is right in our flesh. But it's true, and everybody knows that it's true, that you find real joy, you find real life in giving your life for another and laying down your life for Jesus. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I mean, what good is it going to be to be as rich as Elon Musk if you go to hell? And I'm not saying Elon Musk is going to hell. I'm just saying, isn't he the richest guy now or whatever, or Jeff Bezos or somebody? What good is it going to be to gain the entire world, but you still go to hell? You still lose your soul. You forfeit your soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What is the most valuable thing to you? What really matters to you? You know, if you want to know and test yourself in this, it's a really good test just to look at what am I spending most of my money on? And what am I spending most of my time on? You don't have to get real super spiritual to figure out what's most valuable to you. What is most of my time spent on? What is most of my money spent on? And Jesus isn't saying in here you, you can't have fun, you can't do the things you like doing, recreation, all that kind of stuff. I mean, he didn't get mad at the disciples because they went fishing. They just weren't catching anything it's after his resurrection. So he said, hey, if you're going to fish, fish with the Holy Spirit at least. Put the net down on the other side, right? And, but but we, we have a culture of recreation. You know, we have a culture of games. We have a, a culture of just trying to find something to fill that emptiness on the inside, and nothing ever does. So you know, what are we spending our, most of our money on? What are we spending most of our time on? And here's a good one. What is my mouth speaking? What am I saying? Because Jesus said that words come out of our heart. Whatever I'm saying, that shows where my heart is. Wherever I'm spending my money and my time, that shows where my heart is, right? Because that's what Jesus said. So these things reveal to us our heart, and we need to guard our heart. And if, you know, as you hear this word this morning or later on, or if this has been a conviction in your heart, uh, you know, let's, let's not feel like God's trying to condemn us or something. He's just saying, hey, grow up. You want revival, then grow up. Make an investment in revival. Make an investment in doing my will. Look at me at Proverbs chapter uh, 4. Proverbs chapter 4. And... Really good verse that probably everybody knows, but I'm going to look at it in a little bit of the context. In Proverbs 4, verse 20, uh, it says, My son, give attention to my words. We're talking about guarding our hearts. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. So, yes, Father God, I want to give attention to the Bible. I, I want to incline my ear. You know, today it might be written put on your spiritual headphones so you can hear me because there's so much noise around. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life. What is life? My words. This is the Bible. It's right here. My words are life to those who find them 
and health to all their body. They're better than a doctor. They're better than medicine. This is health to all of your body. Watch over it. Listen, this is the verse. Watch over your heart or guard your heart with all diligence. Well, how do I guard my heart? By inclining my ear to his words. Not meditating on the, in, in the spirit of the scoffer. Not sitting in the seat of the scoffer. But inclining my ear to listen, to hear what God is speaking. Watch over, guard your heart with all diligence. It's not going to be easy. It's not easy, is it? It's going to take diligence if you want to guard your heart. But guard your heart. And here's why. It tells us why. Because from it flow the springs of life. Because that meditation of your heart controls what you speak, it controls what you do, it controls everything that you're, you're going to get in life. And you're going to get what your heart is dreaming of. So teach your heart to dream of what God dreams of. Be zealous after the things of God, and it won't be easy. It's, it's to teach your heart these things. Put away from you a deceitful mouth. Quit telling lies. Put devious speech far from you. Quit deceiving yourselves and people. We live in a culture. A nation of lies. Well, don't be a part of the lie. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet. Look out for what you're doing, and all your ways will be established. So do not turn to the right nor to the left. Just turn your foot away from evil. I used to have this coach. His name was Hicks Dean. He had a really funny voice, and I could do it for you, but there's no point in it. Now, my brother and I were great imitators of his funny voice. And he was, this is like an eighth grade football, but he was like one of those coaches that sticks out in your mind because the guy was a character. I could tell you stories, but they'd be too off color for a sermon. But he was a character and he was a good coach. And he had this saying for the linesman, and I was always on the lines, I couldn't do anything else except just get in people's way. And, uh, and, and his saying, you'd have to see his body to really get this because he was really fat, like like genuinely really, really fat and probably quite out of shape. But at one time he had been a good football player, as we understood, and he definitely knew football and was a good coach. And uh, but he, had, he always had this saying where he'd say, uh, you just keep right on walking, just keep right on walking, just keep right on walking. And uh, my dad was at one of the practices one time and picked up that saying from him, unfortunately for us. And, <laughs> and then that became the phrase in our house for years. And it, it, I guess it got instilled in me somehow. Just don't quit. Just keep right on walking. Keep right on walking. Just one step in front of another. Just keep going. You know, and I'm not talking about keep going in your own stubborn rebellion. That's not what it's talking about. Repentance means making a 180, turning around and going after Jesus. But most of us already know that. I, I, I think the sluggard aspect of just wanting to give up. And just, you know, Satan in this culture has done a really good job of just drugging us up and putting us in a fog and we just don't have a zeal for God. We have it, but it's just way down in the inside. We need to get in touch with that zeal again and just keep right on walking, not turn to the right, not turn to the left, but be following him. So there's one more passage of scripture I want to go to and it's in Acts 16 and I'm going to close here. But it's really... If I, if I would have thrown away the entire sermon except one thing, this is what I was going to go to. But it's in Acts 16. And it's just a story of Paul when he was arrested in Philippi. We've been talking about the Philippians, Paul being in jail. And although when he wrote Philippians, that was a different time he was in jail. But uh, he, he had to get used to being in jail if he was going to preach the gospel. That was his realm of suffering. He calls it my thorn in the flesh. You remember that passage? If you read that carefully, he's talking about the persecutions. You know, he has to get put in jail. He has to get beat up. He has to get whipped. Uh, he has to have his name drugged through the dirt. Uh, he has to be shipwrecked. He has to go through all this kind of stuff. And he said, I cried out to God three times. I cried out to him. I, I mean, I believe that that means that he took like an extended period of fasting and prayer to try to solve this. Not just that he said, oh, God, help me. But I cried out to him three times in my life. And I said, could you please stop this persecution? This thorn in my flesh, this messenger of Satan, this demon that attacks me everywhere I go. I'm just trying to do your will. I just want to serve you. And, three, and first time, silence. God doesn't answer him. He doesn't stop. 
Second time, silence. God doesn't answer him. It doesn't stop. I don't know how long Peter, Paul prayed about it, but at one point he just realized, apparently God doesn't want to talk to me about this. I just got to keep going. But he didn't quit. Remember Jeremiah? I love that verse where Jeremiah said, I'm just not going to preach anymore. I'm not going to share your word anymore. I'm not going to do the revival thing anymore, God, because nobody's listening to me anyway, and you're apparently not listening to me. I just quit. And then he's, God didn't even have to talk to him. He's just sitting there, twiddling his thumbs. He said, I, ah, it's like a fire in my bones. I can't not preach. And he had to just go back and do it, even though it wasn't fun and it wasn't easy for him. He found the fun, if you want to use that word, in it. He found the enjoyment in just pleasing God and not pleasing people. And so Paul prayed about this, but the third time, you know what God said to him. He didn't say, okay, I'll take the thorn away. He said, stop asking me about the thorn. It's not going anywhere, but know this. My grace is more than enough for you. It is sufficient for you. I've given you an introduction to my grace, so begin to hide yourself in my grace, and the thorn won't matter to you anymore. You'll write entire books like the epistle to the Philippians while you're sitting in jail. You'll do amazing things through this suffering, and I will accomplish my purpose in that suffering. And when I talk about suffering, you know, I, I mean, I don't logically think anybody here is ever going to get put in jail for preaching the gospel, although we're moving in that direction as a country. But has anybody raised kids or is raising kids? You know, and you want to see God's move in your family and in your life, then you know what it means to suffer. You know that you have to deny yourself. And you have to give up a whole lot of things that you would rather be doing probably. Right? To lay down your life for the next generation. Well, let's just take that as an example. As you know, parents, everybody understands that example. Do we want to see a move of God with the youth? Then we're going to have to lay down our lives and not care about the things that we care about as much as we care about the things that, that God cares about. And there's many simple things he cares about. So Acts chapter 16, uh, let me read verses 9 and 10. It says they're in uh, Philippi, or no, he's, he's currently still in Turkey, what we call Turkey today, in uh, Asia Minor. And, uh, uh, oh, that's chapter 17, okay, 16. And in chapter 16, verse 9, we read about his vision. It says, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him. Macedonia is over in Europe, in Greece. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, there's several things I want to point out to you here. One of the things is in this word, we sought to go into Macedonia. It didn't just happen because he got a vision. They had to get the money together. They had to get the ship. They had to get the tickets on the ship. They had to work. They had to invest. They had to say goodbye to the things they were doing in Asia Minor because they don't know when they're coming back. And they had to go on the mission trip to go to the other side. Revival doesn't just happen because we want revival to happen. We have to position ourselves and prepare ourselves for what God wants to do in our lives. The other thing is this, that Paul, if you read the context, Paul's been trying to figure out what God's will is for many days. And he keeps going places and the Holy Spirit says, no, no, no. You would think that God would say yes and tell him something. But God doesn't always just tell us. I don't know why. I don't have to know why because I'm not God. But dads know what they need to do, right? And he's our father. And the father's not telling him, go do this. He's just telling him, don't do this. And sometimes that's a big part of the positioning is getting us to stop doing what we're not supposed to be doing. And they weren't bad things. We already know about the bad things. But the busy things that we don't need to be doing. And so God's stopping him from doing those busy things, good things, but busy things that aren't what God wants him to do right now. And then he gets a vision in the night. He has a dream, basically, we would say. A really powerful, vivid dream, you know, the kind where you really feel it. It's very really as a vision in the night. And he sees a man that lives in Macedonia. And the man is saying to him, come over here and help us. And he hears, listen to this, he hears the call of a person in need. He hears the cry of a person in need and he equates that with the call of God. And it's proven to be true. 
that God is speaking to him through the person in need, through the man in Macedonia that's calling him over. We need to open our ears to hear the cry of people's hearts today. We need to open our ears to hear what they're really crying for, what they're really begging for, what they're really asking for, and how God wants to make us an answer to their needs. And when I say those kinds of things, our thoughts immediately go to, oh, we need to go start a ministry where we feed the hungry, or we need to go out and do this, we need to go out and do that. And maybe we need to do those things, but let's start at home. What are our own kids What are our own families crying out to God for? And how can we be an answer? How can we be an answer? for? Because when we get revival within this body, it's going to go out everywhere. That's not a problem. The problem is getting the revival in us. Okay? So he hears the cry of this person. He hears this cry for help and he follows that. And then there's a whole story here. You can read it in the context. Come to verse 23. He gets arrested for obeying God. He gets arrested for moving in the gifts of the Spirit and casting a demon out, basically. You think you can just cast demons out and not get persecuted? That's why we love modern psychology better than the Word of God because it takes the responsibility off of us. I mean, really, it's a whole lot better just to go through a whole lot of, and and not knocking psychology or psychiatry or or anything. If people are getting help, then they're getting help. But everybody knows you don't get saved through, through sessions with a psychologist. You just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And everybody knows that there comes a moment when you get delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit and things really change. Jesus talked about casting out demons. He didn't talk about counseling sessions. And I'm not knocking counseling sessions, they can, but, but let's have counseling sessions that end with dealing with demonic influences and getting them out of a person's life. So anyway, they cast this demon out, they get arrested. And um, look at verse, verse 23. It says, when they had struck them with many blows, okay, that means they really beat the pulp out of them. They threw them into prison. I, I don't think that felt very nice being struck with many blows. I've never been struck with many blows. Never. I've been struck with a couple of blows and it didn't feel good. I had broken nose. Those, that never feels good to get struck with a blow, does it? But being struck with many blows, I think that'd be like being in the worst car accident you could be in and still be alive. I mean, they've got broken bones. They're hurt. They've got bruises all over their body. I don't know if they broke their bones, but it's that level of pain. When they'd struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And what they're doing is illegal. It comes out at the end of the story because they're Roman citizens and they haven't had a trial. It says, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison. That's the worst part of the prison. That's the, you know, right on the inside. There's no way to escape. And fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay? That's a very painful thing. Uh, It's... It, I mean, having handcuffs put on you isn't, isn't exactly enjoyable, but having your feet fastened in stalks would, would have been extremely painful to them, especially with the bruises. Now listen, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. What? They got revival right there in the, mid, in the middle of the prison at midnight. I mean, <laughs> is isn't exactly a moment when you're going to be singing songs, but here they are singing songs. And I do not believe that that is because they're super Christians. I do not believe that that's because they are super apostles. I believe that's because they are just Christians who love Jesus. And they can trust God in the middle of the worst situation. They have no hope of being delivered from this. And for all they know, they will be executed in the morning. They don't know an earthquake's coming. They don't know God's going to set them free. They don't know what's going to happen. Any more than the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, knew that Jesus was going to show up in the furnace with them and they'd be saved out of there. Because they said, he might not save us out of the furnace, but we're still not going to do what you want us to do, O king. We're going to obey God no matter what. They don't know they're going to get delivered from prison on this day. They're not singing because, oh, everything's going to turn out okay. Everything's going to be okay. They're singing because they have a song in their heart. And I want to ask you this question because it's an indicator of revival. And I sense that this morning here. 
but it doesn't happen by default, and it won't happen if we're not diligent to guard our hearts. Are we singing the song to the Lord at midnight? And the word midnight here is really important. At the darkest moment, what's coming from my mouth? Will I sing the song to the Lord? Notice that they're not singing songs to the other prisoners. You know, we have a lot of, there's a lot of popular Christian music, and, and, and it's good, and it's got good concert value and things like that. Uh, but we're not singing to the Lord. We're singing about the Lord. And I'm not trying to teach on how we should do worship or something like that this morning. But, but whatever we're doing, if it doesn't bring us into the hiding away in the presence of God, and, and, and it's leading us up to this crescendo moment where we're singing to the Lord, then we're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. And we're missing out. We're just singing good hymns or singing good songs, singing about the Lord. We sing a lot of songs about ourselves. We do. It's just the truth. I, 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 And the more I that's in that song, probably the less Jesus that's in the song. Okay? And, and they're singing to the Lord. They're not singing about the Lord. They're singing to the Lord. Their hearts are hearts of worship. They've hidden themselves away in God. They've got chains on their hands. Well, it doesn't say hands, it says feet, but they're definitely bound to, you know, you know the, uh, the chains and their, their feet are bound in these stalks and they can't move. You know, they're stuck in that position. I don't know if their hands were tied also, how they are, but they're stuck in that position. And they're singing to the Lord. And they're singing so loud and with so much joy that it says all the prisoners in the place. They, don't even, they can't even see who's singing because they're inside the inner prison, but they can hear the, the song. And they're all enjoying the song. You know, the greatest, I, I mean this, the greatest moment of evangelism isn't when we're singing to people about Jesus, but when we are singing to Jesus and we are a witness to them and they see that we have a real relationship with Jesus. Revival is just naturally or supernaturally contagious. I mean, people want to be where there's revival. And they have a revival at midnight. They have revival in the prison. And their song makes the earth to shake. Here's another indicator of revival. If the earth isn't shaking from our song, then we're not there yet. Then we're not there yet. When they sang the song, the earth shook. They didn't sing the song to make the earth shake. They didn't know what was going to happen. They're just singing to the Lord. But their song to the Lord caused the earth to shake. Their song to the Lord caused the city to shake. It caused a revolution for Jesus. It did not change the city government. It's just as bad or maybe worse afterwards as it was in the beginning, read to the end of the story, and they're trying to like cover up their mistakes, and they don't want to admit that they arrested him, and just finally say to Paul, just get out of town, and kick him out of town. It didn't change anything like that. I don't think all the bars shut down in town, or whatever they had. Uh, I know the temples of the foreign gods just continued there. You know, None of that stuff had to change. It didn't matter. The people's hearts changed, because they're alive for Jesus now. They want Jesus, and it starts, it's a revival that starts with prisoners. It doesn't start with, with a lot of great people. It starts with prisoners. And then look at verse uh, uh, 27. Verse uh, 27, it says, When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself, because he's going to get put to death for the prisoners escaping. He was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Saul and si Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They didn't have to say to him, You need to be saved. He knows he needs to be saved. But I want you to see that there's two moments here where Paul and Silas cry out with a loud voice. The first moment is a moment where they don't know what's going to happen to them, and they're in, in, in stocks. And they're worshiping God because that's who they are. They've hidden themselves in Christ Jesus. And I don't have any indication in the Bible that Paul and Silas were great singers, that they had good voices, that they were trained musicians. 
You know, that's not why we sing. We sing because we were commanded to sing and because it's who we are. I mean, birds don't sing for something to happen. That's just who they are. My dog doesn't bark for any reason that I can figure out. It's just who he is, and he wants to bark. And I wish he could speak words and be a little more quiet about it. But he has this thing where he's just barking, ear-piercing barking. And I'm like, finally, okay, it's because you're a dog. I get it. But we sing because we've been born again, because we are new creations in Christ Jesus. And the song comes forth from them. But look at the next moment when he cries out. Then, when he sees the jailer is getting ready to commit suicide, he cries out and says, Sir, don't do that. Don't touch yourself. He doesn't just take a back seat and say, Yeah, <laughs> he'll go ahead and kill himself and then we'll all escape. Right? No. I mean, he's not looking for that kind of out. He's not trying to get out of jail at all. In fact, it's kind of weird. He's not trying to get out of jail. God didn't do the earthquake so he could get out of jail. God did the earthquake. The earthquake happened to manifest the power of God to that city. And Paul's perfectly fine to stay in that jail. And in fact, he goes home to the jailer. Somehow in that night between midnight and 6 a.m., they go all the way to the jailer's house. The entire family of the jailer gets baptized. They all become Christians. Revival breaks out. And then the jailer's like, oh, my, i got to get you back over to the jail because the city officials are going to show up. And he gets them back over to the jail and says, yep, they're all here. Everyone's here, you know, <laughs> and it's actually kind of a funny story. And that's when Paul says, and they say, well, then get on out of the jail because you're Roman citizens and we made a mistake. And Paul says, I can get me out of the jail. You're not going to get me out of the jail based on that. You're going to officially apologize to me. What you did was wrong. We are Roman citizens, you know. He, he doesn't want to just get out of jail. He wants revival in that city. And he's willing to suffer for that revival in every place he goes. And again, not because he's a super Christian, but because he is a Christian. It's the call of Jesus to all of his disciples. And the last verse I want to read is verse 33. It says, when you read the whole story, it says, He, the jailer, took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household. I just have on my heart to bring this out again about the suffering. This, this, these wounds they have. It's quite amazing how God can do a miracle like the earthquake. And when the earthquake happens, their handcuffs just fall off. You know, earthquakes don't make handcuffs fall off, right? You know, I've never put handcuffs on somebody, but anybody that's a police officer or something, and they put handcuffs on somebody, just because there's an earthquake, the handcuffs aren't going to come off. That has nothing to do with an earthquake. So this is a miracle. It's not just a happenstance earthquake. It's an earthquake that's laser-pointed on their handcuffs. It doesn't even bring the walls of the prison down. It just makes the gates open. Okay? So the gates open, and their cuffs fall off. It's a miracle. And God did this miracle, apparently, so that there would be revival in that city. Not because he needed to get... He could get Paul out of jail any way he wanted to. But he needed to do it in a way that the whole city could see that the jailer would see, that everyone would see, and everyone would know. But having done this great miracle, God didn't heal their wounds. Isn't that a little bit strange and a little bit interesting? They still had those wounds. They still had the same, I don't know, broken leg or whatever it was. They, they had been beat up, and they were still in a great deal of physical pain. They were suffering, and the jailer loved them and cared for them because he had received Jesus, and he washes their wounds. Well, isn't this Jesus? Jesus goes to the cross, and he's raised up from the dead. But having been raised up from the dead, he still bears the same wounds. We love to say the scars, but they were not scars. They were not scars. They were wounds. You remember that Thomas said, unless I can stick my finger into the wounds that are in his hands and thrust, literally said, thrust my hand into his side. There was a hole in Jesus' side. You know, a spear is not some small thing. You know, that head of that spear is huge, and that was thrust into his side. And having raised from the dead, he still bore those wounds. And he said, if you want to follow me, you want to see revival, then you will bear these wounds. You will take up your cross and you will follow me. And you will find that in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of those trials, 
that my grace is more than enough for you. It's so sufficient for you that you'll sing a song at midnight in prison that will cause the earth to shake. It's so sufficient for you that like Jesus, when he was on the cross, your song will be to the Lord. He didn't cry out against the people. He cried out to the Father God. And when he talked about the people, all he said is, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Because he trusted in the Lord. He had hidden himself away in the Father God. And he was making bold access for us to come into his presence also. Let's stand together. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvinionfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.